you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to John chapter number four, the gospel of John chapter number four. We are continuing in a series titled Come and See as we explore the life of Jesus through the gospel of John and see how that impacts our lives today. So if you would, John chapter four, as you're turning there, I want you to think about a phrase that I've often used. It's the phrase game changer. You may have heard uh, this phrase used before, and there may be a lot of things that comes to your mind, but I looked up a few different explanations of what the phrase game changer means. I want to share a couple of them with you. The first one is this. Game changer is an event, an idea, or a procedure that affects a significant shift in the current manner of doing or thinking about something. Event, idea, procedure affects a significant shift in thinking or doing, whatever that might be. The second one was this, a newly introduced element or factor that changes an existing situation or activity in a significant way. So something that shifts an existing situation or activity in a significant way. The third one's this, a sudden action, usually the result of a successful plan that changes the entire course of a game or a match. Now, when you think about Game Changer, you might be like me, and you might think about sports. Could be maybe some major penalty that uh, changed the momentum of a game or some turnover that you might call a, a game changer in whatever game or event you were watching. Might be a major injury that happened to an athlete that changed what was going to happen, right? We would think of these moments as game changer types of moments. But really, the reality of game changer moments are not just sports related. These happen in various ways all throughout our lives. We've all had different moments that we would call game changer moments in our life. As a matter of fact, this past weekend, I experienced what I would call a, a, a game changer type of moment with my kids. Now, you may not know this, but Yesterday was a citywide yard sale day. So if you wanted to have a yard sale yesterday within the city, you do not have to ask permission or uh, pay a fee or whatever it is that we have to do. Instead, you could just have one uh, at your house. And so my family decided to have a yard sale yesterday. And really when I say my family, I use that very loosely because really it was Kayla and the kids. I had no part in the yard sale that happened at my house yesterday. But this was my kids' first yard sale. And here's what they discovered. I wanna tell you why this was was a game changer for them. They discovered that all of the things they no longer want, you can put at the side of the road and people will actually come by and give you money for the things that you do not want. My kids discovered that they could take all the stuff that they no longer had a use for and people would give them money. For them, this was a game changer. Now, I can't imagine now the piles that are going to be put in places at my house of things that my kids think that they'll be able to get money for in the future. Now, listen, it could be things that are much more serious that you would consider to be game-changing kinds of moments. It could be a difficult life change like moving or a divorce in your family. It could be the death of of someone important in your life. It could be a job loss or a medical diagnosis. It could be some trip or retreat or sermon or worship event that brought you closer to Jesus in a way that's never happened before. Whatever the case may be, we would call these game changers. It could be any number of decisions that you've made that affected everything in your life. Now, I know what you're thinking, Danny. Why are we talking about 
game changer? Well, it's because what happens in John chapter 4 with an encounter that Jesus has with this woman is what we would call a game changer type moment. Think about the descriptions that we already talked about with the phrase game changer. This encounter with Jesus is definitely about to shift the current manner of doing or thinking about life for this particular lady. This encounter with Jesus is definitely about to introduce a new element or a new factor that will change the existing situation of her life in a very significant way. All of us, when we encountered Jesus, probably had the same type of moment. Why are we talking about game changer? Well, from my perspective, as far as that phrase exists, moments like that, as far as I can think of them, make me realize that Jesus is the ultimate game changer. Listen, you don't have to just take my word for it. I want you to listen to the encounter of this woman as she begins a new journey of life with Jesus. John chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Let's take a look at what John records for us. John chapter 4, verse number 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So in your minds, in the course of what we've looked at so far, Jesus has done ministry in Galilee already. He has now came to Judea. He has done ministry alongside of John the Baptist. Now he's leaving again once for Galilee to continue his ministry. Verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now comes our encounter. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, Samar a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Father, thank you so much for your word. Right now, we ask that you would meet with us, that you would show us what you have for us, that, Father, you would convict us and challenge us and change us right now as we spend time in your word. Father, we ask that you'll have your will and your way in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now listen, from this particular encounter, I wanna show you a few things that we learn about Jesus. I wanna show you a few things that stick out from these pages that help me understand why he is in fact the ultimate game changer. Here's the first one. He's bigger than any place. Jesus is bigger than any 
place. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, it says in the beginning of this encounter that when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making more and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, this is a significant moment in the ministry of Jesus, not only because of who he will encounter soon and the life change that he will bring and the words that he will share with us that will change not just her life, but ours as well. It's not just because of that, but it's because of the reason in which he is leaving Judea and heading to another place. Now, here's what we know. The popularity of John the Baptist and Jesus were both noted by this time in scripture. They had done ministry alongside of each other. Hundreds and hundreds of people had come to them in order to be baptized. Everyone knew who these guys were. However, in this moment, Jesus leaves and heads back to Galilee. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons that we would say are probably most likely. The first one is this. If you reference the other gospel accounts with John's account, it's likely that at this point in time, John the Baptist has been arrested. This helps us understand the timeline of Jesus's ministry as it links between the gospel of John and the other gospel accounts. Now, John the Baptist at this particular time was arrested because of his stance against King Herod's marriage to his brother's wife. Now, we're not going to look into that uh, or, or dive too much into those details, but I do want you to know this. Because John has been arrested and the guy that Jesus was doing ministry alongside of, because that has shifted so drastically, this obviously heightens his awareness to what's happening in the world around him. So John's been arrested. This is obviously one reason why Jesus might be looking for somewhere else to serve. Secondly, it's likely that due to the rise of popularity of Jesus and John and his arrest, that Jesus doesn't want a premature confrontation with the religious leaders. So he leaves. He knows that if John's been arrested for what he's doing, who knows what will happen to him? As a matter of fact, he knows more than who knows. He knows that he will eventually die at their hands. And so because that's going to take place, he doesn't want it to happen yet, right? So John the Baptist is arrested. That obviously piques some, some interest to where he will do ministry. He doesn't want a premature confrontation with the religious leaders at the time. Also, though, I want you to see something else. It could be not only because of those two things, but also because Jesus knew the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders who filled the area of Judea and Jerusalem. Now, we already read a passage in our time in the Gospel of John in Mark's Gospel where Jesus called them out for being fake. Maybe Jesus is leaving this area not just because of the arrest of John the Baptist, not just because he doesn't want a premature confrontation with the religious leaders, but could it be that he's leaving this area to get away from fake people who really won't worship him to begin with. Now think about this for just a moment. If that's true, Jesus will leave the places where no one wants to worship him and he will seek others in other places that do want to worship him. He leaves Jerusalem. He leaves Judea. By the way, a place where everyone should have wanted him to be. He leaves because he's rejected there. This is not the only place in the scriptures that Jesus would leave because of his rejection, but it is the one we're reading about right now. All the history that's happened in Judea, all the works of God before this moment, yet Jesus leaves. Why? Why would he leave a place so rich in the works of God? Well, friends, it's because it doesn't matter what's happened before. Jesus is bigger than any place. This moment is a game changer for Judea. You want to know why? Because Jesus 
leaves. It doesn't matter that God had done so much before. They rejected Jesus now, and he's revealing to them, doesn't matter where you're from or how much you think you deserve or how worthy you might find yourself to be, you are never above Jesus. And so he leaves. As a matter of fact, John Phillips writes this about the word left. When Jesus, when John records, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Here's what he writes. It conveys the idea of leaving something to itself, to its own fate, of leaving someone to their own devices, of withdrawing whatever controlling power was exercised before. It is a significant word. From now on, the bulk of Jesus' ministry will be in Galilee and elsewhere. He will leave Jerusalem and Judea to their own devices. He will only return when it's time for him to die. This is a game changer for this place. Why? Because Jesus leaves. But I want you to see the next place because it's a game changer for that place too. Look back at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now this is significant, and we may not pick up on it because of our culture today. We don't understand as much the racial issues that were happening then. We don't live where they lived. But Jesus is about to step into a place that Jews, in fact, did not go. The Samaritans were considered a, a half-breed among the Jews. They were half-Jewish and they were half Assyrian. Now, we won't get into the history, but here's what happened. During the days when Israel and, Ju and, and uh, Judea were split and the northern and southern kingdoms happened, there were other people, once they were conquered, who moved into their area. In this case, it was the Assyrians. And when they moved in, there was a remnant of Jews who were left in that area. And those Jews intermingled and married with those Assyrians. Now, the, the culture is not that big of a deal. Here is the big deal. When they married the Assyrians, they did not just marry a different different race. They married a different religion. And the Assyrians brought with them their gods and their religions that were not honoring of the one true God. And in that case, the Samaritans kind of became their own type of worship. They built a temple for their own worship on Mount Gerizim. By the time that Jesus's ministry happened, their temple was destroyed, but they still worshiped separate from the Jews. In fact, they even had their own version of the Pentateuch or of the Bible at that time, along with other events in history, this caused the Jews and the Samaritans to hate each other. Now, Jews would typically take a route around Samaria so that they would not have to pass through it, even though passing through Samaria was significantly faster. Now, think about that. They didn't even want the bottom of their feet to touch the same ground that the bottom of a Samaritan's feet would touch. But Jesus, this is why this is significant, had to pass through Samaria. Or you might have a King James Version Bible. It's a really interesting phrase that's translated. It's this, he must needs go through Samaria. This is a huge game changer moment for Samaria. You want to know why? Because Jesus goes to a place that no one thinks he would ever go to. Now let this settle for a moment. Doesn't matter that every other person would choose to go somewhere else. Jesus is bigger than any place. As a matter of fact, the Lord was compelled to pass through and stop in a certain village, not to save time, not to save steps, but because he had a divine appointment there. Matter of fact, John frequently uses this verb, had, to speak of Jesus 
fulfilling the mission given to him by the Father. He was always conscious of doing the Father's will. Judea, Jerusalem, where God's people were chosen, where he should have been doing so many awesome works, Jesus leaves. Samaria, a place where the people are despised, where no one thinks Jesus should be, he goes there. Why? Because Jesus is bigger than any place. As a matter of fact, God's already worked in Samaria before this time. Look at what it says in the very beginning of verse 6. It gives us a key here. Jacob's well was there. Now, why is this significant? Because Jacob's well is believed to be the resting place of Joseph, one of our heroes in the faith. Also, Mount Gerizim is in view, where the Samaritans worship, but where the half, where half of the tribes of Israel had assembled to pronounce the blessings contained in the Mosaic law. This is somewhere where God has already been. In other words, he is surrounded by places where God has done some incredible things in the past. Now think about this. How quickly we forget that God is at work everywhere, even in places where we think he's not. We can find God to work in the ways that we think he should, or we can find God to work in the places that we think he should. He works in church services, and that's very true. We're thankful for that. He works in Bible studies. Absolutely, we're glad. He works in youth camps. He certainly does. We're thankful for all those things. But how many times have you experienced God at work in places that you never thought he would? I'll give you a few examples for me. I've been in the middle of the largest motorcycle rally in the country where so many evil things were at work. And guess what I saw? I saw God change lives right in the middle of that place. I've been in some places that were extremely poor, never heard of, overcome with darkness, whether it was slums in El Salvador or mountain villages without any contact to the outside world in Honduras or boys in Belize who have no hope of life change. And guess what I saw there? I saw God change lives. I've been in the hallways of school campuses where culture has done its worst. Yet, guess what I've seen? I've seen God show up and change lives. Listen, the only difference I can find between Judea and Samaria is one had Jesus and the other didn't. He left one and he went to the other. Friend, the only difference that I can tell you between all those places that I've mentioned is Jesus's presence. Now let that sink in for just a moment. Maybe the only difference between a game-changing moment in your own life today has nothing to do with the place that you're at and everything to do with whether or not Jesus is there. Listen, I don't care what the place is. I don't care how dark it may seem. I don't care where you've come from. That does not matter to Jesus. You wanna know why? He's the ultimate game-changer. He's bigger than any place. But I wanna show you this. He's also bigger than any person. He's bigger than any person. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, look back at verse six. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, this is probably about noon. Jesus is tired from walking. He needs to take a break. We discover that his disciples are not with him. He's alone. They went into the town to find some food. And so here's Jesus, almighty, powerful God, tired and alone when he meets a woman from Samaria. That's what happens when we pick up verse number seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink because his disciples were gone. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now listen, we miss a little bit of this strange encounter with Jesus if we don't understand the context of the time. So let me give you a couple of things. First of all, it's strange that this woman is at the well at this time. They wouldn't have come at noon. Most women would have come early or late to avoid heat. In fact, there may even be somewhere closer to draw water for them than the well that Jacob had built anyway, but yet here she is. Like Nicodemus who met with Jesus under the cover of darkness, this woman also meets with Jesus at a unique time. Why? Well, we learn later in the account of this woman that she is clearly an outcast, and so she's coming on her own so that she can avoid all the scorn, all the hate, all the judgment from the other women who would be there at other times. In other words, listen, she's not the kind of person that we think Jesus should be meeting with. Her past makes her the least likely of candidates. It's strange. Also, it's strange that Jesus would talk to a Samaritan. Why? Because Jews at this time had no dealings with Samaritans. In fact, Jews thought that you would become unclean by associating with a Samaritan. They wouldn't even travel through their town because they didn't want their feet to get dirty with Samaritans. Now, this is interesting for Jesus because he's dealt with plenty of unclean people. He's dealt with sick. He's dealt with disease. He's dealt with demon-possessed. Jesus always did the unexpected. In fact, the New International Version translates uh, this verse a little differently. It adds part, a part to the verse in verse number nine that includes this phrase. Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. Jews wouldn't even talk to Samaritans, much less drink out of the same container. Yet Jesus is saying, draw me some water so that I can have a drink. She's not the kind of person that we think should be meeting with Jesus. Her past makes her the least likely of candidates. Her people makes her the least likely of candidates. But let me show you one more interesting thing about this woman. It's also strange that Jesus, a rabbi, would be speaking with her, a woman, at all. He said, Danny, what do you mean? It was uncommon for Jewish men to speak with women in public during this time. The strict rabbis forbid that a rabbi even speak with his own wife in public, much less another woman. Yet Jesus speaks with her, and there's no mistaking that Jesus is speaking with her. You want to know why? They're the only two at the well. Everyone else is gone. Listen, she's not the kind of person that we think should be meeting with Jesus. Why? Her past makes her the least likely of candidates. Her people makes her the least likely of candidates. Her position makes her the least likely of candidates. In fact, even the woman herself is surprised that Jesus would be talking to her. Though this seems strange to that culture and certainly to this woman, Jesus crushes the norms of his day in order to change the life of the outcast. Friends, can I remind you of something? Praise God. Jesus is still crushing social norms and trends in order to change the life of outcasts like you and like me. Think about it. We're not any different than she was. What we've done makes us the least likely of candidates. Where we're from makes us the least likely of candidates. Who we are makes us the least likely of candidates. Yet Jesus breaks all the norms and he comes to us. Think about this. She wasn't looking for Jesus. She was going to the well like she always did. However, this day was a little different. This day is what we would call a game changer because Jesus was there. Now listen to me, friends. He wasn't there for the well. He wasn't there for the water. He wasn't there because he was tired and he had no else to stop. Don't miss this, friends. He was there for her. 
That's why Jesus was at the well. Even the most unlikely of candidates, friends, that's you and that's me. In fact, look at verse 10. Look at what Jesus said to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Let this process, Jesus' revelation of himself to this woman demonstrates that God's saving love knows no limitations. It transcends all barriers of race, gender, ethnicity, religious tradition. In contrast to human love, divine love is indiscriminate and all-encompassing that Jesus chose to make himself known first, not only to a Samaritan, but also a woman, was a stinging rebuke to members of Israel's religion elite who rejected him even when he revealed himself to them. In this statement, Jesus told her all she needed to know to obtain salvation. Danny, what do you mean? He told her what it was, living water. He told her who controlled it, who it is that is saying to you. And he told her how she could get it. If you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. This is one of the first gospel presentations of John gospel account. The divine son of God, tired and thirsty, the holy son of God conversing with a woman of low moral character. Here was Jesus, a Jew, crashing through the barriers which separated him from the rest of the world, yet he did it. And in doing so, he demonstrated the universal nature of the gospel. He showed God's love for all people. Listen, Jesus asked her for a gift. He wanted some water from the well. However, he would offer her a gift well beyond the gift that he asked of her. She would be the one who actually had something to gain. You might be here this morning. You might be just like this woman. You might be the least likely of candidates. You say, Danny, my past, what I've done, I am the least likely. You say, Danny, because of my people, where I'm from, I am the least likely. Danny, because of my position, who I am, I am the least likely. Friend, don't miss this. Jesus is bigger than you. He's bigger than your past. He's bigger than your people. He's bigger than your position. Friends, listen to me. He's bigger than any place. He's bigger than any person. He is the ultimate game changer. Now watch this. He's also bigger than any problem. He's bigger than any problem. Look back at verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Matter of fact, most believe it was over 100 feet deep. She says, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He's given us this well, drank from it himself, as does his sons and his life. Are you greater than the one who gave us the well? Listen, she still hasn't caught on to what Jesus is trying to do. Now listen, I don't feel bad for her. I connect with her. I oftentimes miss what Jesus is trying to do. She doesn't have the benefit of knowing what we do on this side of scripture. She doesn't know yet. She's confused. She doesn't realize what he's trying to do. She still keeps missing the point. Friends, she's made the long trip to this well many times. She knows how deep this well is. How can he give her any water when he has no way to get it? This is so similar to the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus just a chapter before. He kept thinking about being born again as being 
put back in his mother's womb. But Jesus meant something so much more than that. Nicodemus didn't understand at first, and neither does this woman. In fact, the phrase living water was used to describe a, uh, water that's found in a flowing stream, or if from a well, water which came from an underground flowing spring or fountain. We hear living water, and we know what Jesus meant. She hears living water, and she goes, well, Jacob's well is not living water, so what's the well he's talking about? Where is he talking about finding living water from a moving or flowing stream? That's not how the well works. But we know Jesus wasn't talking about water at all. All she can think about is her current problem. All she can think about is the need that she has in that moment. However, Jesus is talking about so much more. How many of us find ourselves in this same type of situation? Think about it. She's so concerned about a bucket that she almost misses the blessing. She wants to know how Jesus is better than our father Jacob. If she only knew, Jacob wouldn't have even existed if it wasn't for Jesus. She had experienced the charm of plenty of men before Jesus, and apparently she had fell for it every time. Yet Jesus wasn't trying to use her like the men before. He wanted to change her. Now I want you to process this like I did. Jesus isn't always a practical fix. He doesn't need my perspective. He doesn't need my permission. No, friend, listen, Jesus doesn't have to be practical. He doesn't have to fit my perspective. He doesn't have to have my permission in order to be praised. He's way bigger. He's not trying to clean you up. He's not trying to give you a better job or a better house or a better spouse. He's way bigger than that. He wants to bring dead things back to life. I love how the psalmist put it when describing Jesus in Psalm 36. For with you is the fountain of life. He's bigger than any problem. The prophet Isaiah once said this about Jesus in Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. What's the wilderness? What's the dry land? It's you and me, friends. Listen, here's what he says. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. That's what Jesus will bring. Think about the irony of Jesus asking for this water from this woman. He didn't really need any water. He just told us that he's the living water. Think about it. This is the one who created the mighty Mississippi River. He could command the water in that well to spring out and flood the entire world. He did not need her, but don't miss what Jesus does here. He doesn't need us, but wait, he wants us. This is why Jesus would tell the religious leaders later when they said, hey, keep your people from shouting praise to you. Jesus tells them, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He doesn't have to have us, but he invites us to be a part of what he's doing. Listen, no matter what you think in this room this morning, you're not too bad. You're not too busy. You're not too far gone. Listen to me, friend. Jesus is offering you the same thing that he offered this woman. He's offering new life through a relationship with Jesus. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will never or will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again because the water that I give will become 
a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's helping her realize that everyone who drinks of this water from this well, they'll be thirsty again. She was trying to satisfy a natural craving of her physical body. She was thirsty and she wanted some water to quench that thirst. But Jesus tells her that she has a deeper craving, a craving of her soul. And she, or we, can try to fill it with all kinds of things, all kinds of water from who knows how many wells, but we will just get thirsty again. It will never truly satisfy. It will never fill the void. Here's what Isaiah would write later in chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Who is the waters? The living waters. Jesus is. Isaiah would write, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Or why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Instead, incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. C.S. Lewis called this an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Have you ever felt that way before? An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing diminishing pleasure. Let me give you a few examples. Everyone who's ever looked at pornography has felt this way before. Each look at that screen produces more cravings and less pleasure. Everyone who's been addicted to a substance has felt this way before. It takes more and more to get high, and the high gets shorter and shorter. Everyone who's been in a codependent relationship has felt this way before. As the relationship gets worse, the feeling of needing the other person gets stronger. Everyone who's proud has felt this way before. We need more and more applause, even as it matters less and less. Everyone who's self-righteous has felt this way before. We write more and more rules and find less and less joy. The root of sin is pursuing. Pursuing happiness in something other than God and sin produces an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. But wait, Jesus can fill it. He will give eternal, everlasting, satisfying life. He offered her the living water, salvation in all of its fullness, including forgiveness of sins and the ability and desire to live an obedient life that glorifies God. Listen, in this moment, all I can think of is what John would later write in Revelation chapter 5. Listen to this moment. He's given a vision. He writes, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Listen to what he's saying. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Now listen to John. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I feel like John is saying, who can quench the thirst that nothing else can quench? Who can satisfy the cravings of my soul? Who can fill the void that nothing else could fill? He's weeping because no one is found who can save his soul. But listen, it doesn't end there. The vision goes on. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. In this moment, John rejoices. He realizes that Jesus is the one who can offer eternal life. He realizes that Jesus is the living water that will quench our thirst forever. He is the one who can satisfy the cravings of my soul. Friend, listen to me. 
We have plenty of problems in our lives and we'll continue to have them on this side of eternity. There will always be a need to go to the well and get water. But with Jesus, the greatest problem, the only real problem we have has been defeated by him. Your soul thirsts for a relationship with him and nothing else will satisfy. There's no other solution to your problem other than Jesus. I don't know where you've been. I don't know where you're going. I don't know how you've tried to satisfy satisfy the deepest cravings of your soul, but here's what I do know. Every person in this room today has a craving deep within their soul, an itch that we can't scratch. Friend, you will only find that satisfaction in Jesus. He is the ultimate game changer. He is bigger than any place. He is bigger than any person. He is bigger than any problem. You will find zero satisfaction in anything other than Jesus. I love what someone wrote about this moment. They wrote, Jesus had every reason not to talk with this woman, but just as he did with Nicodemus, he begins a conversation with her that penetrates to the root of the issue. He understands her heart. He understands her condition, and she doesn't. Jesus reached out to the moral Pharisee and the immoral Samaritan. Both of them were in desperate need of salvation from sin, a salvation that could only come through Jesus. We see this same pattern in a famous story Jesus told about two brothers in Luke chapter 15. One brother, the younger one, was like the Samaritan woman. He selfishly left his family to go party with his friends. He lived a lifestyle of drunkenness and immorality. He was a rebel looking for love in all the wrong places. The older brother was a moral and religious figure like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He had a high opinion of himself. He was arrogant, though that was probably hidden under the guise of humility. He was self-righteous and blind to his own sin. He looked down on other people, especially his younger brother. Though he kept all the rules and lived morally, he was miserable and unhappy. Now listen to this. Both brothers, just like the Samaritan woman, just like Nicodemus, the Jewish leader, desperately needed Jesus to rescue them. Everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. The moral can't be saved by their morality. They can only be saved by Jesus. Also, the immoral are never too immoral to find salvation in Jesus. Listen, maybe you're here this morning. And you need to hear that Jesus wants to bring you living water. He wants to satisfy the cravings of your soul if you would simply decide to follow him. He wants to be the game changer that your life needs. Will you surrender your life to him? Friend, listen to me. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you're from or who you are. Jesus offers you satisfaction that your soul craves. Matter of fact, I love what he says to his disciples in Mark chapter 8. He says, what does it gain if you gain the entire world, but you lose your own soul? You know what Jesus is saying, nothing will fill the craving except for me. I am the living water. I wonder who's here this morning needs to know that Jesus is the living water. Maybe someone is here this morning that needs to hear that Jesus is still the living water. He still longs every day to satisfy your soul. And maybe you've tried to fill the void in your life with other junk and you've left empty and you don't know why. Friend, it's because you've walked away from the only one who can actually satisfy your soul. Matter of fact, listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says about God's own people. Listen to what he writes. For my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I wonder who's here this morning who needs to realize for the very first time, Jesus is the living water that can satisfy the cravings of your soul. I wonder who's here this morning that needs to remember he still is the living water. And you can go build whatever wells you want, and you can go try every type of water there is, and it will never compare to Jesus. Listen, friends, if you don't know him, he wants to save your soul today. You don't have to go find a well somewhere. He is the well. He is the living water. You can give your life to him today. You know what else though? I know there's a lot of people in here who already know Jesus. I wonder even after you've began a journey with Christ, how many times we still go to find other wells? How many times we still go to find other water? How many times we still go to other things to satisfy our soul when we already know Jesus is the only one who can satisfy? Listen, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what's happening in your life, but I know there are two people in this room. There are people who need to go to the living water and there are people who need to go back to the living water. We're all in this room. What is it that Jesus is showing you through the encounter with this woman today. You've been going to other wells. You've been trying to be satisfied by other means. You've been looking forever and ever and haven't found it. Friend, listen, Jesus is the answer. Those who are lost, he's the living water. Those who are saved, guess what? He's the living water. He's got one message for us today. He is the ultimate game changer. There's nowhere else to go. It's Jesus. So listen, I don't know what this encounter means for you. But I know for me, it's a game changer moment. And I want to always find myself going back to the living water. Jesus has got everything we need. Will you look to him today? Let me pray.